Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, uh, we're getting close to the end here. Now you're probably thinking the end of what? Uh, The end of the sermon? No way, you've just started. Uh, The end of the service, maybe that's wishful thinking on your part too. No, what I mean is we're getting to the end of this sermon series. Since early June, Monty has taken us on a masterful tour of the parables of Jesus. And next Sunday, he wraps it all up with the parable of the sheep and the goats. In our series, we're also coming close to the end of Jesus' life his life on earth. These last two parables, uh, this week and next week, were delivered by Jesus as he taught during the last week before his crucifixion. And these last two parables, in his teaching, we're getting close to the end of time. These two parables are pulled from the last of five major teaching sections in the book of Matthew that structure Matthew's gospel. And this last section is chapters 23 through 25. It's sometimes called the little apocalypse due to its similarity to the themes in the book of Revelation. It's also called the Olivet Discourse, a reference to the location from which Jesus spoke, the Mount of Olives. Jesus was attempting to prepare his disciples for his soon-to-come departure. The disciples, however, didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to accept the fact that Jesus was going to be taken from them. And so as they walked along, they called Jesus' attention to the massive structures of Herod's temple, as if to say, look, things are going to remain as they are forever. Look at this beautiful temple and its strength. And they were referring to Herod's temple. Herod took it upon himself to remodel and expand the temple that had been built after the exile. Uh, And in the course of, uh, he had many public works projects. This was one. And uh, it doubled the size of the enclosure on the Temple Mount. And it stood as a visual reminder to the Jews of the strength of their nation and of better days to come in the Messianic kingdom. The disciples called all that to Jesus' attention, and he answered them in a way that challenged their understanding. He says, do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. (laughs) And they didn't understand how that could possibly be. And they asked him then, Well, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When? That's something we all want to know, isn't it? especially when it comes to the second coming of Jesus and the end of time. When? Instead of concerning ourselves with what will happen, or more importantly, how 
we should prepare for it. We want to know when. Why does this concern us so much? Why do we worry ourselves with this? Trying to put a date to these events. In the history of Christianity, it's amounted to uh, a prediction mania. How many times during your lifetime alone has a teacher made a claim to have the key that unlocks the biblical prophecy to let us know the exact day of Jesus' coming? And how many times have those persons been wrong? Up to this point, they've been wrong 100%. Why do we continually seek to know when? Perhaps we believe we can control our own mortality. Perhaps if we knew when, we would commit the time remaining to Christ's service. Perhaps we would go about our business until the end was imminent and then fix things, make things right with God. In the epistle of James, the author warns against boastful planning for the future, and reminds us that we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Knowledge of the future may not, after all, be a good thing if it keeps us from living well today. And James concludes that section by saying, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. We see similar teachings from the second book of Peter, in which he warns us against doubting the certain return of the Lord. He, he tells us he will come like a thief in the night. He will destroy the heavens and the earth as we know them and replace them with a new heaven and a new earth. And any perceived delay, Peter says, is not slowness on God's part, but patience and salvation for us. But, nevertheless, dates and times concern us. And when we're looking at end times, the eschatological times, we focus on dates. We want a timeline. However, the clear teachings from Scripture are rarely about when and always about how we prepare and what we should be doing. And so today I want us to examine what Jesus said about the topic of when. His answer to the disciples' questions tells us some things about when, but if you read through that section, you'll find it's very complicated. And you'll find that biblical scholars debate as to its true meaning and timing. But there's one verse in this section that's amazingly clear. There's no debate here. In verse 36 of Matthew 24, Jesus says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. How presumptuous of us to claim to know when Jesus will return when he declared even he did not know. And then Jesus continued, verses 37 through 39. As it was in the days of Noah, 
so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now what do we know about the generation of Noah preceding the flood? Genesis 6 tells us they were wicked, continually evil in their thoughts, corrupt, violent, so much so that God regretted creating them and determined to wipe them from the face of the earth. To be compared to the generation of Noah is certainly not a compliment. They pursued their own desires right up to the day Noah and his family entered the ark. And in spite of the urgency of Noah's warnings, they persisted in their disbelief, their apathy, their pursuit of pleasure, and their ignorance. Peter says the people of his day were just like the generation of Noah. Doubting judgment because they believed Christ was not returning. After all, they reasoned, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Oh, but has it? What about the flood? What about Noah's generation? And Peter says, because you've ignored the example of Noah, you are more blameworthy than they were that you have the record of God's judgment by flood and you have failed to heed it. Now listen, this next statement is very important. I have no reason to believe our generation is any different. People go on about their lives, living in sin, in total oblivion to God's word, in total oblivion to what he says is going to happen. Now then, what shall we do? Jesus tells his generation and ours, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And then he continues in verses 43 and 44, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now let me review three things Jesus said here. He says, keep watch. He said, be ready. He said, expect him. As we move into chapter 25 of Matthew, Jesus cements his point in our understanding with a parable. We're getting familiar with parables. Parables are illustrations for those who want to understand. And they are riddles for those who refuse to understand. I hope you're in that, in that first group. That you are granted greater understanding by the illustration of the parable we're going to look at today. So will you listen with an open heart and seek to understand uh, <clears throat> as I read this parable in Matthew 25. 
At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. In Jesus' day, when a couple were engaged and about to be married, the bridegroom would spend up to a year preparing a place for his bride in his father's house. When all was ready with the bridal chamber, And when all was set for the wedding feast, he would travel in procession with his friends to fetch his bride from her father's home to bring her to his home, where the wedding feast would take place. And the wedding feast sometimes lasted as long as a week. The bride, too, would be accompanied by her friends, as Jesus talks about in this parable. One of the tasks of these bridesmaids was to make sure the party traveled safely to the wedding. So they carried lamps. Now, keep in mind, there were no LED flashlights, no street lights, so night travelers carried their light with them. In this case, it may have been one of the small um, uh, pottery, Aladdin-type lamps that we think of, or more likely, it was a torch, a stick with a wad of, of material on the end, that would be soaked in oil, and it would, it would burn and provide light. Some of these torches even had an extra reservoir of oil that kept the, the torch burning uh, for longer. Jesus characterized these young women as wise or foolish, based on one thing. Did they bring enough extra oil to keep their, tur- their torches burning into the night, for as long as it might take for the bridegroom to come? Were they adequately prepared, even though the groom's coming might be delayed? They did not know for sure when the bridegroom would come, so they needed enough oil to last until daybreak, perhaps. As it was, the bridegroom's coming was delayed, and they all fell asleep. Now notice, Jesus does not in this instance condemn them for falling asleep. That wasn't the issue. They were where they were supposed to be. Their lamps were burning to light the way. But their fault 
was in their belief that he would come sooner rather than later and their failure to make adequate preparations for a delayed coming. Finally, at midnight, they are awakened with the cry of the herald. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And they all woke up and they began to trim their lamps, get them burning again. And five of them were ready to go. But the foolish five discovered their oil was nearly gone. And they had no extra. Their torches would sputter and smoke and eventually die out. Now they first tried to borrow from their wise friends, but were told there was not enough to go around and still guarantee that the lamps would continue burning. And so the wise women suggested the foolish women to go to the oil merchant to buy some more. Now, this has always intrigued me. Uh, there were no 24-7 super Walmarts in the area. Uh, there wasn't even a quick trip. Now, I've wondered, is this suggestion by the wise bridesmaids, is it delivered tongue-in-cheek with a little sarcasm? You know, are they saying, well, since you're so smart, why don't you go to the oil merchant at midnight and buy some oil? Well, whether they meant it sarcastically or whether they meant it seriously, it would nevertheless mean rousting someone out of bed to make a sale in the middle of the night. Not exactly the way to make friends with your neighbors. Nevertheless, the foolish virgins felt they had no other option than to go in search of oil. In the meantime, the bridegroom claimed his bride, and the procession returned to his home and the celebration, five bridesmaids short of a ten-pack. When they all arrived at the bridesmaid's home, at the bridegroom's home, they went in to the celebration, shutting the door behind them. This is perhaps one of the one of the saddest phrases in Scripture. The door was shut. Um, and when the foolish friends arrived, they discovered their services were no longer needed. They had disgraced the happy couple by not showing up on time and not fulfilling their assigned duties. They tried to beg admittance, but the offended groom claimed not to know them because they had not turned out to be the friends he thought they were. There were no second chances. Now that's Jesus' story to illustrate what he's been talking about all along. In case we would misunderstand what he's saying, he adds a final moral of explanation, the main idea behind this parable. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. He's obviously in this parable not talking about proper wedding etiquette. He's not talking even about how to be a good friend to others. He's not literally talking about making sure we have an adequate supply of oil when we go to a wedding. His teaching goes much beyond all those things to spiritual matters. 
he's teaching about the certainty of his return and the necessity of our being prepared at any moment. Even though we know he is coming, we don't know exactly when. He doesn't tell us to try to figure out the answer to the when question. But instead, to prepare and to stay in a state of readiness. It's risky business to put off preparation because we think we have plenty of time. The consequences are grave, literally grave, if we are not ready and watching. The door will be shut and we'll find ourselves on the wrong side of it. With Jesus denying that we are his friends, we cannot depend on the preparation of others. Each of us must make our own decision about living a life of watchful readiness as we prepare for the coming of the Lord. What about you? When you read passages of Scripture that seem to describe what will happen at the return of Christ and the end of the age, what is your attitude? Do you take them seriously? And make whatever preparation is necessary to make things right with Jesus? Or do you say, tell me when? So just in the nick of time, I can fix what's wrong with my life. Do you say, I'll keep on postponing these important decisions because I believe I have plenty of time. If that's our thinking, we forget he promised that he will come like a thief in the night, suddenly and unexpectedly. There will be no time to get ready when Jesus comes. What are you waiting for? When Noah built the ark in obedience to God's commands, he acted in fear of coming judgment. When all was ready, even though it hadn't even started raining yet, Noah, his crew, and his cargo entered the ark, and just like in the parable, God shut the door. Those who were on the outside realized too late they were on the wrong side of that door. And they all perished, just as God had told them. When Jesus came the first time, John the Baptist served as a herald of the coming kingdom, preaching a message of repentance. And those who listened to him had time. They had time to get ready, time to prepare for the one who was coming. But this time, there's no more warning. There's no more alarm. The next voice you hear will be the midnight cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. 